Mark. I remember being about 10 when Uncle Albert would sit in his cloth beach chair in the front yard, holding his bird notebook that he'd drawn birds in, how they look when they're flying. They weren't very good pictures. He's quizzing Thatcher, Meredith, Norley, and me. He has his teeth out, so he's talking funny. A bird is flying over the trees. What's that one, Norway? Be quiet, Meredith. A crow. It's a buzzard, says Meredith. I said be quiet. Give her another chance. Next time she gets two chances. Everybody gets two chances from now on. Understand? Do you understand, Meredith? Yes, sir. Don't you mock me, he jumps, holding up onto the chair, arms like he's going to get up. Then he does his jaw motion where his chin goes up into his face. Then he sits back. That night, I'm staying at Meredith's. Uncle Albert goes to bed early. Meredith begs Aunt Mildred to let us stay up and watch TV. She says, okay. The Channel 9 News signs off, and suddenly there is an F-104 starfighter climbing higher, then rolling into a lazy, airy... A lazy aileron roll. Look at that, says Meredith. The camera zooms in. A white-helmeted pilot sits in the cockpit, and there's this poem about slipping the surly bonds of earth and dancing the skies on laughter-silvered wings, and goes on something about reach out and touch the face of God. Oh, wow. I read that poem at my brother's funeral. Man, that's something. Did you see that? Yeah, I saw it. Turn station. Maybe it's on another station. That's what I'm going to do, says Meredith. I'm going to fly one of those. I am too. No, you're not. You can't go in the Air Force if your daddy got killed in the war. You can't go. It's going to be me. I tell mother I want to be a jet pilot, and she says, if you were a doctor or a missionary, you could fly to see your patients, maybe, or whatever. But if you were just a pilot, you wouldn't be able to be a doctor or a missionary or a concert pianist. Bliss. We were eating dessert when Dan Braddock says, Mark, you're going to find you one of them slant-eyed girls to marry. They'll walk on your back and make you feel good. I don't know, says Mark. I might end up staying in the States. That stuff might be over for too long. I'm not going to volunteer to go, but if I have to, I have to. Find you a slant-eyed one in the States, then. Rhonda looked at Meredith. I'm going to check your back for footprints. Maybe he won't have to go over there either, I said. I wish, said Rhonda, but that ain't what he told me. I'll probably go, said Meredith. Then Thatcher got into his military arm talk, which pretty soon changed to talk about the next day's hunt. Mildred, Aunt Sybil, and Rhonda were talking about Silver Springs, and Miss Esther and Norley were eating quietly. I wish Norley would speak up more. She'll talk to me, but not much, unless we're alone. I got to thinking that I would miss Meredith during the next three days of hunting, and Thatcher, but especially Meredith and Mark, in light of their going off in a few months. It occurred to me that I could go along on a hunting trip. Why Why not? I could join the, these men, be with them, for one day at least, one of the three hunting days, but I dared not broach the subject in front of everybody at once. 
I waited until later when the men had gone out to the guest house, just before we were settling in for the night, and I asked Rhonda, who had a rollaway bed in the living room, Have you ever thought about going hunting with the men? Nope. Shoot little birds? Fishing is hard enough for me. I think I might see about going one day. I don't think I'd like it. That was enough for me. I went quietly out the back door so that I could knock on the guest house door, get Thatcher to come out and ask him. Meredith was sitting on the back steps alone. It was cold. I sat down beside him. What are you doing out here? I asked. Just thinking, kind of. He looked at me and smiled. And Rhonda's supposed to sneak out. Should I go back in? Oh, no, no. So I sat. I had to say a few things. You know, I think about you leaving a whole lot, Meredith. And nobody talks about it much, one way or the other. And coming down here makes it worse. Makes what worse? Thinking about it. I don't know why. Because we're all together, I guess. It's just something I have to do, and then we'll it'll be over. He was wearing blue jeans, worn thin at the knees, little fuzzies. I put my hand on his knee, the soft cloth, and rested my arm on his leg. I wish you weren't going. That's all I can say. The side of his face was lighted by the dull green lights from the streetlight. Hell, three years from tonight, we'll be sitting right here, he said. I'll remember that, I said. We sat not moving. I could feel his leg and knee with my arm and hand. You be sure to write me. I will. Good. Listen, what do you think about me going hunting with you all tomorrow? Why? Just to see what it's like. Fine with me. Yeah, that'd be fine. I asked Rhonda and she didn't want to go. Yeah, it's all right with me. You might get a little tired, though. I realized that I wanted to be Rhonda for a night. Just one night. But I knew the deep and sacred futility of such thinking. I guess I'd ask Thatcher first, I said, standing. Tell Papa I'm watching some more TV. I stood, walked to the guest room, and knocked. Mr. Copeland opened the door and stuck his head out. I got a glimpse of Mark in his underwear. What is it? said Mr. Copeland. I want to ride along on the hunt tomorrow. Think that'll be okay? You? I just want to see what it's like. Okay. We'll make room. Damn, it's cold. See you in the morning. Thatcher'll come wake you up. We got the clock set. He shut the door. I knocked. The door opened. Meredith said to tell you he's watching TV, I said. He better get to bed. I turned and started back to the house. The streetlight shone through the Spanish moss. Rhonda was sitting with Meredith on the back steps. The cold, damp air went straight through my clothes, through my skin, to my bones. Cold weather in Florida is very cold because it's so damp. Florida being between two oceans or, or an ocean and a gulf. I walked up the steps past them. You going hunting tomorrow? asked Rhonda. I'm not sure. I'm thinking about it. I think I'll see how cold it is. Good night, y'all. The next morning at about 5.30, Thatcher came in and held my foot until I woke up. It was quite cold, even inside. Before we had gone to bed, Aunt Sybil put out a pair of her leather boots and extra socks 
since the boots were a little big. Thatcher had brought over some of Mr. Copeland's hunting gloves, pants equipped with extra thickness in front to guard against briars, hunting coat, flannel shirt, and black crewneck sweater. In the coat pocket was toilet paper and an apple. How practical. I rolled up the sleeves and pant legs. We walked out the back door into the freezing, damp darkness. There was a bright new moon. We walked across the yard and the road and into the back door of the store where Uncle Hawk was cooking breakfast. Mr. Copeland, Meredith, and Mark, dressed in their hunting clothes, sat around a small table in the kitchen. Uncle Hawk was singing at the stove. I sat at the table with the others. I could tell that no one had strong objections to my going along. I happily anticipated being in on this ritual of the hunt, watching the dog work. I'd heard so many exclamations about their exploits, and finally spending some time with Meredith and Mark Thatcher. They ever tell you about Tyree and the hot coal? Uncle Hulk asked me. No, I don't think so. He thought he saw a piece of chocolate on the floor one time in front of the fireplace, picked it up, and it burnt the hell out of him. But instead of hollering, he handed it to his half-brother, Dink, said, Here, Dink, you want some chocolate candy? And Dink took it, and it burnt the hell out of him. Blistered him and left a scar, but it didn't burn Tyree at all. Leastways, it didn't leave any scar. I always thought that was Walker and one of his brothers, said Mr. Copeland. I know you did, but I told you I remembered it. I remembered it happening. It must have been before you was born. Maybe so, but I always thought it was Walker. We had a wonderful breakfast of bacon, eggs, toast, honey buns, maple syrup, and coffee. Black. I didn't ask for cream since no one else was using it. While we ate, Uncle Hawk and Mr. Copeland talked about progress on the float plane. We all thought that Mr. Copeland had given up on it several years ago, but he hadn't. He started back on in on it, and last summer, when Uncle Hawk was up for the grave cleaning, they towed it to Lake Blanca and drove it around on the water. Meredith says next time they go, he's going to get Rhonda's band, the Rockets, to come and set up on a flatbed truck and do the song she's writing about the float plane. It worries me because Mr. Copeland does flying, or should I say the floating, and he has had only a few flying lessons. He has a student license, I think, and claims that flying off water will be easier than flying off land because the whole big lake is your runway. Thank goodness he will not let any of the children drive it. He says he's the one built it, and so he'll be the one to fly it when he gets some bigger engines on it and gets it balanced right. It worries Mildred to death. After breakfast, Uncle Hawk sent Thatcher to the dog pen to get the dogs. I went along. They were so excited, jumping around in the pen, up on each other, vapor puffing from their mouths into the cold, damp air. Thatcher opened the door, and they sprinted out packed with energy and about to burst with excitement, running around, relieving themselves, then heading across the side road toward the jeep truck. Bobby Sims, a little man who is Uncle Hawk's hunting partner, arrived in his jeep, three dogs in back, and we got all packed in and went off. I sat in Thatcher's lap for the drive, which started in darkness. How come you're doing this? asked Thatcher. I just want to see what you all do. We shoot birds. We talk and shoot birds. You'll get tired. Maybe so. 
The drive ended in the woods as the sun peeped through the trees. I was mortified to discover that we were hunting on posted land. Mark. Uncle Hawk, fixing a great big breakfast in the cafe part of the store, sends Meredith into the grocery part to get honey buns for everybody. Uncle Albert goes with him. They pack up on cans of, of Vienna sausage and beans and boxes of crackers and cookies and stuff for the hunt. Liz is going with us. I can't wait. I mean, I really look forward to this. And I went dove hunting enough this fall that I think I might be able to outshoot Meredith today. Sometime before we start eating, Uncle Hawk asks me, You still got that little fox, Sterling? I say yes. Meredith and I were 12. The guns were for sale at an estate auction, 20 gauge, double barrel. A fox sterling in a Remington. They were leaning against a wall between two rocking chairs on the front porch. A woman played a fiddle behind a microphone on the auctioneer's stand. Uncle Albert picked up the guns and handed them to us. How do they feel? That's a fox, Mark. Good little gun. A fox? A fox sterling. Good name. Good little gun. The wood was worn smooth and not scratched. It dropped in line when I brought it to my shoulder, pointing out across the field. People saw me, and I felt important. I won't be able to give more than $40 a piece, said Uncle Albert. Somebody might outbid me. The auctioneer auctioned chairs, swords, lamps, hall coat racks, sets of dinner plates. It was time for the guns. The fox was up first. A man had $25 before the auctioneer started. I got a 25, 5, 25, who'll give me 30? I got a 25, a fine shotgun, who'll give me 30? 30, said Uncle Albert. I got 30, 30, 30, who'll give me 35, 35? A man raised his hand. I got 35, 5, 35, 5, 5, who'll give me 40? I got 35. Uncle Albert nodded. I stared at the other man. He was wearing a loose brown shirt and green work pants. I wanted to run over and hold his arms down. Pull him out of the crowd and away. He was standing very still. He had a cigarette in his hand. He brought a cigarette up to his mouth and took a deep draw, raised his hand with the cigarette between his fingers and let the smoke out. I got 45, 5, I got 45, 50. The auctioneer looked at Uncle Albert, who was now, I knew, out of the race. Wait, Uncle Albert or Uncle Hawk? I remember thinking the other man will walk up in the auctioneer, get the shotgun, walk out to his car, open the back door, slide the gun into the back seat, and close the door, get into the front seat, crank the car, and drive off down the road until he disappears, and I will never, as long as I live, see the gun again, the double-barreled Fox Sterling. The 20-gauge, 28-inch barrel shotgun with the shining wood, well-oiled, smoothy clicking breech, the gun which will get me a place in the woods with Thatcher, Meredith, Albert, and the dogs, or with Meredith and the dogs, or walking alone way back in the woods, knowing where I am, able to head for home across broomstraw fields, up and down pine straw-covered banks, through thickets of honeysuckle and briars and pokeweeds, and get back home tired, able to show Meredith whatever I killed. That gun is long gone, said Meredith. I looked up at Uncle Albert. 
He looked down at me and then back at the auctioneer. He nodded to the auctioneer. 50, I got 50. Do I hear 55? The man raised his hand. My heart dropped. Uncle Albert nodded. 60, I got 60. Give me 65. Give me 65. The man dropped his cigarette to the ground, twisted his foot on it, and shook his head. Sold $60 to this gentleman over here. Go get your gun, boy, said Uncle Albert. Meredith got his for 40. That makes me want to cry, too. I'm such a sap. You'd think listening to all the cattle auction that'd be better at doing that scene, but I'm not. <clears throat> Uncle Hawk lowers the tailgate, and the dogs jump up and scramble into the dog box. I slip my gun into the case Uncle Hawk gave me. It has a warm felt lining. Worn felt lining. Meredith climbs up into the cab. I follow and sit at the window. Uncle Albert, Thatcher, and Bliss are riding with Bobby Sims. I think Bliss wanted to ride with Meredith. About ten minutes or so beyond Burgall, we turn onto a dirt road. After about a mile, Uncle Hawk slows down to almost stop and drives the truck across a shallow ditch and into the open woods. He stops the truck near a barbed wire. Oh, this always bothered me. <clears throat> Where was I? He stops the truck near a barbed wire fence about 20 feet from the road, gets out, cuts a small pine branch with his hunting knife, goes back, and erases the tire tracks with, across the ditch. With the screwdriver and hammer, he separates the barbed wire strands from a couple of posts on either side of one standing loose in the ground. With Meredith helping, he pulls the loose post up out of the ground, with the wire still attached, and forces it to lie flat. Then he drives the truck across the wire. Bobby Sims follows. This is what we do every year, and I know Bliss can't believe it. The women weren't supposed to know. Uncle Hawk sticks the pole back into its hole. Then we ride on into the woods and stop. The dogs are bumping around in the doghouse. We make plans to meet at the canal crossing for lunch. Bobby Sims drives off, leaving me, me, Meredith, and Uncle Hawk together. Bliss says she wants to hunt with us, but Thatcher says we can switch around at lunch. When they are almost out of sight, Uncle Hawk opens the doghouse door. The dogs scramble out, run, stop, sniff, pee, then run again with their noses to the ground. Call it, Meredith, says Uncle Hawk. He flips a coin. Heads. It's tails. You get to ride the tractor seat, Mark. I climb up onto the hood and then sit in the seat with my feet on the big wooden front bumper. It's my job to watch for stumps and holes and watch the dogs for a point. If we run up a covey, poppy one, says Uncle Hawk. The truck starts forward. The seat moves beneath me like an elephant head, bumping and rolling slowly, moving along through the woods in Africa. I check my gun's safety switch. It's on. And lay the gun across my lap, thumb on the safety, index finger resting against the trigger guard. We hit a hole, come up out of it. Meredith sticks his head out the window and says to me, Get your head out of your ass. I suddenly see Joe, my dog, standing on the rim of a rise in some tall pines, pointing. Old Joe. Nick is about 30 yards behind him, barking between us and Joe. Uncle Hawk sees them and stops the truck. I crawl down quietly. 
Uncle Hawk and Meredith get out of the truck. No one speaks. I check my thumb on the safety switch. We spread out and side by side start walking up the rise toward Joe. I look at Meredith. He looks at me and makes a face with, and it, with his eyes great big. This is it. When we near Nick, when we are near Nick, Uncle Hawk talks softly. Easy boy, easy boy. We walk past him. Nick follows us, still on point, moving only his legs carefully, silently. Uncle Hawk looks around for the other dogs. I see Banjo, Uncle Hawk's best dog, far behind the truck, hunting. I look back at Joe, up ahead, pointed. I wonder if the fur is raised along his rump. That's Joe's sign, rump fur raised. Birds for sure. Nick's sign is raised fur on his neck. I don't know about Banjo. I look at Joe's rump. He is too far away to tell. Uncle Hawk, turning his head, says, Easy, Nick. Nick follows silently. The hair is raised along Joe's rump, stiff as a hairbrush. He is standing still, his tail hair, his tail high in the air, looking straight ahead, his rear to us. My heart is thumping against my ribs, up in my neck and ears. Old Joe is doing great. My feet make soft brushing sounds in the weeds. My eyes are watering. The hairline above my eyes prickles. I blink tears. I check my thumb on the safety. We are getting close to Joe. Easy boy, Uncle, jo- Uncle Hawk says. Keep walking, boys. We walk very slowly. A step, then another step. I look at the white fur raised stiff on Joe's rump. Joe is exactly between Meredith and me, frozen still. In a line are Uncle Hawk, Meredith, Joe, me. I blink tears, looking for birds on the ground ahead. The birds have to be just ahead. Then, in a thick cover of Lespedeza, white with frost, Joe remains motionless. We walk past him. They're right here, boy, says Uncle Hawk. My heart pounds. The birds are about to explode up in front of our faces. I know it. There is no sign of anything there on the ground in front of me except the frost, frost-covered frost Lespedeza. I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. The birds are hidden, and still I can hardly get my breath. The ground suddenly rises, quail, thundering up and away. I bring the gun to my shoulder, watching a single bird among all the others, as if he's painted there on the backdrop of trees to, to stay forever until I get the gun on him and pull the trigger. I'm pulling the trigger, pulling, then squeezing. The gun will not fire. The trigger is hung. I squeeze, pull, squeeze again. The other two shotguns blast away. The birds are gone. Uncle Hawk is moving out ahead, talking to Joe. Dead bird, dead bird, Joe. My safety is still on. I forgot to click the safety switch forward. Shit, shit, shit. Did you get one, Meredith asked me. Don't think so. You. You? I got one. Straight ahead. Uncle Hawk, did you shoot that one straight ahead? Both mine came left. He's yours. I think I hit one, but he kept going, I say. I know I got one, said Meredith. One, nothing. Ha! Uncle Hawk calls the dogs in, and they find the three dead birds, and we start back to the jeep. You boys hear about Tyree on Rob Tucker's land that was posted, said Uncle Hawk. No. We always say no, whether we have or not. Tyree shoots a bird, and old man Tucker comes over and says, Tyree, where'd you shoot that bird? 
And Tyree says, I shot him in the ass, I reckon, Rob. He was flying from me. Uncle Hawk laughs. Old Mr. Tucker was the sort who point painted it, painted his hair and was a mite high strung. That's what Tyree said about him. At noon, we stop at the canal crossing for lunch. I'm very hungry. It was warmed up a good bit. It has warmed up a good bit, but it's still cold. Uncle Hawk spreads newspapers for a tablecloth across the truck hood and gets out the food. Cans of Vienna sausage, pork and beans, saltines, loaf bread, crackers, cookies, apples, oranges, and coffee. He opens a sack and gets out paper plates and plastic spoons. On the side of the truck, in front of the rear wheel well, is a water tank with a spigot. I hold a tin pan under the spigot. The water sounds in the pan. The dogs crowd in, tongues lapping. I push the pan toward Joe. His throat rests on the upturned underside of my wrist. I feel his throat muscles and his loose, furry skin move on my wrist. I hear Bobby Sims's Jeep coming. They've had good luck. Bliss is smiling. She asks Meredith how many birds he shot. Meredith tells her that he got eight and that I got four. I shot four of his and didn't tell him, I say. We all crowd around the hood of Uncle Hawk's Jeep and eat. The dogs know to stay back. Uncle Hawk throws them slices of bread. You boys going to make it down next year? Asked Bobby Sims with a cracker in his mouth, spooning sardines on his plate. Bobby Sims is short, older than Uncle Hawk, and chain smokes luckies. I don't know. Supposed to be in pilot training. You know what kind of airplane you'll be flying? I'm so glad he asked. I don't know what to do. F-37s and T-38s mostly. T-37 for about four months and the T-38 for about six months. T-37 is kind of small. The T-38 looks like a white Coke bottle, shaped kind of like that. I see it in my mind. I see and feel myself in it. It's supersonic, the first supersonic trainer. How about you, bud, he says to Meredith. I'm thinking, supersonic, man, doesn't that register? I'll be in the Marines, says Meredith. I'll be doing all the work while he's flying around in the sky, counting trees and talking on his radio. I wish they didn't have to go, says Bliss. Her coat is too big, and she's got on one of Uncle Hawk's hunting caps with the ear flaps down. Too big. She's eating beans from a paper plate. Somebody's got to go, says Bobby Sims, his mouth full. Then he talks about people burning their draft cards, saying they all ought to be set on fire themselves. Thatcher says every country has to have a military arm, and I say the civilian leaders decide whether or not to have a military arm, and then the military arm has to do all it can to win any war the civilians believe has to be fought. But I'm thinking that Vietnam might be over in a year. Then I can fly all training missions for five years while I'm deciding whether to stay in or get out and do something with my degree industrial relations. But if I'm one of the ones who has to go to Vietnam, that's the decision I made when I decided to be a part of the military arm. I can see me sitting in a cockpit wearing a white helmet. We finish lunch and load up the dogs. Uncle Albert and I go with Bobby Sims. Meredith Thatcher and Bliss go with Uncle Hawk. That afternoon, we find four or five coveys, and I miss far more than I hit. When it's almost dark, Sam points a a single in a patch of palmetto, 
Okay, you're due, Uncle Albert says to me, almost whispering. Get on up there and pop him. We'll stay back here. Walk right on past Nick and kick in those palmettas. Shoot him in the ass if he's flying straight away, but he'll probably turn left towards that cover. Let the gun move through him, right on in front of him, and shoot with the gun still moving, like I showed you. Yes, sir. I walk up behind Nick, holding my gun ready to bring to my shoulder, then beside Nick. I kick the palmetto, my eyes watering, heart pounding. Nick suddenly pounces, then freezes again. One, then another explodes up. They are going away first, fast. They fly straight away, then turn left as I click the safety, let the barrel catch up, swing through them and in front of them, squeezing the trigger for the blast on my in my face as the second quail tumbles to the ground and bounces once. Good shot, says Uncle Albert. Dead bird, Joe, I say. The other dogs come running. Joe sees the bird, pounces on it, picks it up in his mouth, and retrieves. It's a hen. She holds her head up, looking around, so I grab the head and hold tight and twist until the neck pops. Her body quivers. I wait. Get it over with, I think. Hurry. The quivering continues in my hand, vibrates through my hand, arms, shoulders, chest. I want her to hurry and die to get this over with. I twist the head again. The quivering begins to slow. I stick her, still quivering lightly, into the game pouch of my hunting coat. I figure I haven't been leading them enough. That's it. I've been shooting behind them, and if they are flying straight away, too soon. I've got it figured out but it's too late in the day and we are through hunting.